How do you do, man? I'm doing good. I'm doing very good. Um, I was distressed, though, because of a news story I saw. Should I get into this straight away? I guess. <laughs> I don't know. You're going to set the tone for it. Uh, I generally just, like, squint. I cover my ears and kind of well, listen to it has to, to do with the natural world, and okay. that is 200 pilot whales were stranded off of Tasmania. Oh. And uh, the video is heartbreaking because it's 200. It's not, you know, 10 whales. It's so many. When the uh, story broke out, 10 had died. And they've got 40 volunteers to rescue them. And I woke up this morning and 90 have died and 10 were rescued. And Yeah. Oh, my God. So It's a tragedy that happens from time to time with our cetacean friends. There they are. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know why Wales Beach? Well, I think there's different theories about that. It seems like you've got something in mind, sir. I do. I do. Do you know Anton Van Helden? I believe I've met Anton at one of these whale meetings. I go to whale meetings every now and then. There's a great one we have here in Alaska. Oh, how cetacean of you. Yes, very cetacianically oriented there. Anyways, yeah. You gave me his number, and I looked him up in New Zealand when I was in Wellington. Ah, and we had a nice meal. If you Google him now, the first thing that comes up is he's a magician. Really? He does He does professional magic shows. Oh, wow. Wow. I know. I know. With, uh, does, does he do any uh, whale humor? No, it looks to be pretty straightforward magic. Wow. So I asked him about whale beaching, mm -hmm. and he gave me the most awesome answer. Now, of course, you know, we don't know what goes through a whale's brain, although from our most recent guest, Carl Safina, we do know that they are highly social, they have culture, super intelligent creatures. So he told me something which I never thought of. Whales consciously breathe. They know they have to take a breath. Right. If you ever jump in the water and you're swimming underneath the water, you know when, uh-oh, I better go back up and take a breath, right? Mm -hmm. So whales are mammals that are conscious of breathing. So if a member of their pod is sick or ill or is old and infirm and is having trouble staying above you know, the surface of the water to breathe, other animals will come in mm -hmm. and help support it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And when a pod is doing this behavior of helping one of the individuals within their pod, Anton said that it's most likely they're unaware of a sandbar or the tide's about to go out or they're trying to help them toward a place that is a little bit shallower so that, you know, they don't have to help the individual breathe, but that maybe it can be a little bit above the water because of the sandbar. So they're basically distracted. They're not paying attention. They're helping. They're focused on helping an individual. Yeah. Next thing yeah. you know, the whole group is there stuck. Yeah. Or they are trying to get the individual to a place where it doesn't have to, where it's on a sandbar. Oh, huh. Interesting. Yeah, I know. But, you know, until we get that machine that uh, can translate Tells us animal. what they're saying. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, yeah. that's really cool, man. That's huh, interesting. Yeah, but I never th ever imagined the idea that whales, which are air-breathing mammals, have to be conscious of breathing. Yeah. 
Well, you know, when we were talking with Carl Safina on that recent episode, we were talking, he mentioned that, you know, there's these groups of killer whales that are basically beginning the process of speciating by being so culturally attuned to what they eat. In other words, the fish eaters and then the, uh, the mammal eaters don't mix, and it's really culture that's breaking them apart. Yeah. The smorgasbord killer whale. Yeah, yeah, the ones that eat yeah. everything. So it made me think later, maybe is America speciating that? <laughs> know what I'm saying? <laughs> oh, you, know? you mean the vegans? The vegans and the paleo diets? <laughs> well, yeah, politically, if we just start, uh, we go so far apart, we don't mix uh, anymore. Don't we don't even, even want to go there. Oh, social, I went there. Okay. Social media is the reason why we're divided. Uh, so, social media yeah. brings us together, man. No, it does not. No, uh-uh-uh. Only no, my Facebook. Bro- Anyways, there we go. No, no, it, it I, has completely divided us. And, you know, I asked a buddy of mine after watching that documentary, The Social Dilemma, mm-hmm. which basically says that your news feed in Google and in Facebook is completely different from mine. And if we share the same political views, our Facebook and Google feeds and searches will be similar, but still different based on our choices. Right. But if you compare the two feeds from someone who is opposite you politically, they're going to see a totally different reality of facts and truths. And that is why there is such a divide. And my buddy said, oh, I'll tell you how we can fix this. Oh. Solar flare. Microburst. Kill the internet. <laughs> Let's start all over. <laughs> uh, why don't we start it again? Yeah, start it up yeah. again, man. Yeah. Yeah. But that reminds me that, you know, 500 million years ago, there wasn't an internet. That's right. Well, you know, 30 years ago, there wasn't an internet, but yeah, 500 500 million years years ago, there were no animals or plants on land. Well, there was some sort of gooey stuff, algae, 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 as we say here in America. But is this a clever segue into uh, what we're talking about today? Yeah, it's a clever Ah. segue into our, our awesome guest. And I've always wanted to know. I've always wanted yeah. to know about cephalopods and ammonites and cuttlefish and squid. Speaking of cephalopods, I've got a cephalopod uh, trivia question for you. Yeah. I think you can get this one. Dave, how many tentacles does an octopus have? None. You got it. It's <laughs> right because they have eight arms and a Correct. squid has eight arms and two tentacles. The tentacles, tentacles are these things that stretch out. I thought I was going to get you on that, man. No, no, no. So the tentacles on a squid, aren't they huge reach out grasping things? Well, they're stretchy, weird arms that can go up, well, tentacles that can go in and out. But we can ask today's guest all yeah. about it because there's yeah. all kinds of varieties of them. Yeah, but I, I want to hear about the, the ancient ammonites and, and oh, all yeah, that, yeah. the difference between chambered chambers and not chambers. And we're going to talk about, um, what do they call it? Sphinxstinkles? Sphinxstinkles? What are you trying to say, man? Hold on. It's the tube that connects the chambered sections of a nautilus or of a ammonite. It's called a siphonspunkle. Siphonspunkle? The word I've been butchering all morning is siphuncle. Yeah, we'll hear all about it in the upcoming episode with our fantastic guest. It has to do with the tube running through the chambers of nautilus shells and ammonites and all that. It's pretty cool, a weird word, and here we go. How many, uh, how many hearts does an octopus have? I don't know, three, four, something like that? It's got three, and it's got nine brains and blue blood. Yeah. 
So, yeah, and we'll, okay. we'll get into that All with right. our All guest. Right. Our guest. Okay, great. Because you've met her. I have met her. I've actually. Oh. I read her book. I was so thrilled by her book. Oh, cool. Let's call All her right, up. Let's call her up. All right. Hey, Dave. Meet Dana Stoff, marine biologist, science communicator and author of Squid Empire and Monarchs of the Sea, the extraordinary 500 million year history of cephalopods. Hey, Dana, thanks for joining us. You too, Ray. Thanks for having me. It's great to meet you, Dave. Yeah, nice to meet you. I'm so excited. I've always had a fascination with cephalopods, but I'm sure everybody in your world has told you, have you seen the octopus teacher? I've heard it from so many sources, and it's such a sad thing to say that I haven't made time yet because I'm on deadline oh. for my next book. The manuscript is due October oh. 1st. The Octopus Teacher, is that the latest thing on Netflix or My Octopus Friend or whatever? It's Yeah, yeah, it's... My Octopus Teacher, and it sounds amazing. But hey, speaking of octopus, your path to science started with an octopus, from what I've heard it did. through the grapevine. Tell us what happened there. So I was 10 years old, and I grew up in Los Angeles, and we did a road trip up the coast, my family, when I was about 10 years old, up to Monterey, and we went to the Monterey Bay Aquarium. And at the Monterey Bay Aquarium, there was a giant Pacific octopus, as there still is today, although it's a different one. And I was transfixed. I spent the whole two hours that we were at the aquarium just staring at this giant Pacific octopus because she was looking back at me. And I had this transcendent experience of connecting with another species. And I'd always loved weird things, aliens and stuff. And I was like, this is like an alien. This is like an alien. And it's right here. And it's yeah, on yeah, our yeah. planet. And, uh, and I just completely fell in love. What year was that? That was 1993, approximately. It might have been. Because approximately 1991, I did a show in Monterey at a comedy club, and I got invited to the Monterey Bay Aquarium to the backstage, no. and I got to touch and hang with a Pacific octopus with arms that are the size of my calves. No way! Oh, yeah. The giant Pacific octopus. That I have a so feeling cool. it was probably the same individual if those times are right. Odds are good. Wow. That's magical. So you had this transcendent experience. The octopus is looking at you. You just like, this is my life. And then you decided to keep an octopus at your house. You Is that what you That's did? That's right. That's right. So we went home um, and I already loved animals. I was the, the pet person in the family. Um, I had kept lizards and a box turtle and a snake and some freshwater fish. And so I told my parents, I need to keep a pet octopus. And uh, they were... <laughs> What? sort of skeptical at first they're sort of like mm, mm, mm -hmm. yeah uh -huh. let's have dinner and I just kept at it this campaign I need to keep a pet octopus and my parents and especially my dad bless his heart got into it with me he said all right let's find out is that something you can do so you cannot keep a giant pacific octopus right. in your house as a pet they're but there big. are much smaller yeah. species that you can keep and so he um, he did some research with me. I found an aquarium keeping magazine back when magazines were all paper and uh, newsprint. <laughs> and it had some articles about how to keep a pet octopus. And there was a tropical fish store um, in, in L.A. in Van Nuys, which was close to where I lived, that I could bike to. So I biked to the tropical fish store and uh, wanted to find out if you ever get an octopus in, let me know. And we got this secondhand saltwater aquarium and I kept it. Uh, for the rest of the time that I lived at home. And I kept octopuses at first. 
which was amazing. And I was the girl with the pet octopus. Uh, that was what everyone knew me as at school. And they were about the size of, small enough to fit in your hand. So even a little bit smaller than your hand. And what species would that? Yeah, what, yeah, what kind of octopus? What can you keep in your aquarium at home? So you can keep you can keep octopus species that nobody's really sure what they are because the aquarium trade is not great at IDing species. They'll uh. tell you you've got a common octopus, which is like, okay, what is a common octopus? Um, most commonly, uh, at least on the West Coast, Coast, where I was and am are octopus bamaculatus and bamaculoides, which are the two spot octopuses. And so that was probably what I had, although at age 10 and 11, I was not really like top notch in my species ID. But that's so awesome that the hobby or the desire to have that pet shapes your career. It, and I've never let go of it. So I, I kept those octopuses and then I decided I needed to see octopuses in the wild. So I learned how to scuba dive at age 12. Again, with my long suffering father who was like, all right, I'll learn how to scuba dive too, since you need to have an adult to dive with you when you're 12 years old. Um, and so we would go scuba diving every year at Catalina Island, look wow. for octopuses, Beautiful. very rarely find them, but it was lovely. And uh, yeah, here I am writing books about octopuses. So you then became a squidologist, uh, squid and uh, and squid, squid babies, little detour. That's right. Monterey Bay Aquarium had this experience, and then you ended up going to the Stanford Marine Station right next door. That's right. Probably one of the most beautiful spots on the planet. I love that marine lab. And yeah, so what did you do there? It's so great. Yeah, it really came full circle because I went to Santa Barbara for my undergraduate degree in marine biology, and then I went on to grad school to get my PhD. And there's a squid lab right next to the Monterey Bay Aquarium yeah. that's part of Stanford's marine station. So, so Stanford University has a satellite campus. It's right next to Monterey Bay Aquarium. And one of the uh, dozen or so labs there uh, focuses on squid. So William Gilley was my professor there, and he works on market squid, and he works on Humboldt squid, which are much bigger squid. Squid. Wait, wait, um, market squid sounds terrible. Market squid? Is that something you send to the market to eat? That's your calamari, man. It is. Yep. Oh. That's your calamari. So uh, we're, we as a species are very interested in things that we can eat. True. You know? So there's yeah, not a lot of ratfish yeah. scientists out there. So there's a lot of squid people. But I'm slowly but, changing my opinion on eating things that were alive slowly. Well... Well, I know, I know. I'm not going to go there. Well, the funny thing is, I've actually been, I've actually been a vegetarian my whole life, so I have never eaten squid, oh. despite studying oh. them and studying two of the species that are the most fished and eaten in the world, which is the California market squid and the Humboldt squid. The Humboldt squid is the biggest squid fishery in the world, um, or it was. It has crashed in recent years, which is a whole other story. But um, So you had this yeah. fascinating work on squid babies and I, one little squid. I was watching your drawing, your little animated drawing. Can you, <laughs> can you tell me what that, that was just mind-blowing. What's oh, I'm so this. glad you liked it. Yeah, I can yeah. totally describe that. So these Humboldt squid that we were studying, as adults, they get to be about four or five feet long, which is about, I'm a scale of exactly five feet tall. So I say Humboldt squid is about me size as an adult. Um, and the babies are teeny tiny. So we knew that they had teeny tiny little eggs, which is typical. A lot of squid species, have, even giant squid have tiny little eggs, like the size of a grain of rice. But when I started my PhD, we had never seen them. 
them in the wild. We had never seen eggs of this species, um, which was kind of frustrating because market squid, by contrast, they have they um, come in close to shore and they have these huge spawning aggregations um, that you may know about the whole spawn and die, lay lots of eggs. It's really easy to find market squid eggs. And we'd never seen them. So I started studying them by making them. I was doing in vitro fertilization, catching adult Mark, uh, sorry, adult Humboldt squid, uh, males oh. and females, taking the eggs from the females and the sperm from the males and mixing them up in little Petri dishes to make baby Humboldt squid because we there was no other way to get them. So that was how we would study them. Yeah, I was doing a little oh. bit of laboratory science there. And then um, a couple years into my PhD, we were in the Gulf of California um, off the coast of uh, Baja California, Mexico. And some diver, we were on this research cruise. There was a whole bunch of us on the boat studying lots of different aspects of squid biology and other marine biology. And there was a group of divers doing what's called blue water diving, which is when you go out so far away from kelp forests, from reefs, from rocks, from anything that all you see is blue water. And they went down to find all of these amazing animals, gelatinous stuff, uh, just weird stuff in the water. And they found an egg mass of the Humboldt squid, which they didn't even know what it was at first, but it was gigantic. And they said it was about the size of a small car. They got a little bit of video footage of it. So those of us who were on the boat got to see it. Just floating freely? Just floating in the water, not at the surface even, but but about like, it was about 40 feet down. And so no one had ever seen one before. Not that we know of, not that anybody had reported or taken pictures of or anything. Um, and when you think about it, it actually makes a lot of sense that they're hard to find, that nobody ever sees them because they're not attached to rocks. They're not attached to sand. They're just floating and they're not even at the surface. So you wouldn't see them if you were just on a boat. You have yeah. to be underwater to see them. And they're very diffuse. So the, the divers were actually moving through this mass of eggs um, that's just this very thin gelatinous matrix studded with teeny tiny little eggs. And the reason we know for sure it was a Humboldt squid egg mass is they were able to collect some of the eggs. And I raised them and they hatched and then we did genetic testing to make sure that's what it was. And we did some calculations and figured out that there were maybe half a million or more eggs in that single (laughs) egg mass. Whoa, wow, and that's from one squid. And that's from one female squid. And she can lay more than one of those. Wait, that's from one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's consistent with the female squid that we've studied because if you open up an adult female and do some calculations on the eggs that she's holding in her body, she's got millions. And what's the percentage of hatchlings that will survive to be adult? Very, very, very low. That egg mass is just full of snacks for the marine community. (laughs) Do you want fries with that? Appetizer, yeah. yeah. Come on in. get into a question are you a paleo nerd yeah i am i will proudly join the ranks of the paleo nerds although that nerdery i have to confess is more recent than my passion for octopuses 
Um, is that because you want to study the you want to study where they all came from? That's right. Well, that's you want right. to speak with authority on where they are from. And I've been I've listened to a few of your talks, and you you kind of you know you're saying dinosaurs are like they're okay, but wow, cephalopods have got it going on. So, that's uh, right. <laughs> I have to confess, I'm trying to promote ancient cephalopods to the level of obsession with ancient dinosaurs that our society has. Well, I have a question. Maybe we should have you describe the very first, in the fossil record, the very first cephalopod, which is a Plectronoceros. Plectronos. How do you pronounce it? I'm screwing it up. Plectronoceros. Plectronoceros. How do you say it? I, I think that you did a good job there, Dave. I've already, I've always said Plectronoceros. Finally, Ray, I got one right. Okay. <laughs> oh, I said it right. There's no, there's no authority on the subject. It's just however we want to say it, right? It's. Hold on a second. I gotta, I have to stop this. My Plectron- stupid dog is yelling in the background. Plectronoceros. And we can practice, right? Plectronoceros. Plectronoceros. Yeah. So I'm sorry, I have to stop. It's a lot easier to write than say it. This never happens. Arthur is being a bad dog. (laughs) Arthur, come here. Arthur the dog. Come here. Uh, <laughs> Jesus, dog. I want to talk about recording. squid abundance too, and the squid overlords yes. at some point. Yes, we should get to that. Okay, back to the podcast. Describe yeah. the very first evidence of, and the reason why I say evidence is because there could be earlier uh, organisms Absolutely. that we don't have in the fossil record. Yeah. And that's the thing about the fossil record is, by definition, it's incomplete. We almost certainly do not have a fossil of the very first thing that we could call a cephalopod. Um, But the very earliest cephalopod fossil that is known is very interesting. Um, And part of what's interesting about it is that it's so teeny. It's like a little snail that could sit in the palm of your hand, Plectronoceros, is how I like to say it. And with it looking like that, with its shell sort of like a a snail shell, but not quite as coiled, just sort of curved back. Uh, And you'd say, how do we even know it's a cephalopod? Because there were plenty of other mollusks around, snails and clams and relatives. And the way we know that it's a cephalopod is that the shell is chambered. So this was the key innovation that separated cephalopods from all of the other mollusks, all of these other squishy shell-bearing things, is that the inside of their shell, they built walls inside it to make chambers. And then in Inside those sealed off chambers, they were able to pump out liquid and let gas diffuse in. And I love this because it's nothing that modern cephalopods... Okay, so this brings me to another word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do it. Does this have a siphuncle? 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 Siphuncle. A siphuncle. It does. It does. It's the very first fossil siphuncle. Okay, and that's proof... I'm not yeah. judging. But that's, but okay, so this is a little tube that connects the sealed chambers that it's not necessarily a tube like a straw. It's more like a permeable membrane that allows gases to um, to what? To, to trans- enter the chambers there, but right? Yeah. Well, let me ask you this, Dana. Uh, so we're back in the Cambrian. Uh, is this fossil found at the Burgess Shale or where, where is this fossil from or where they've been found? That's uh, really fantastic question that we should look up because <laughs> okay. i don't know <laughs> i went googling and i couldn't find like i don't think they're found at the burgess shale but no i don't think they are in the burgess shale 
But that Walcott did write about them. He's a Smithsonian researcher mm-hmm. that went to the Burgess Shale. But we're in the Cambrian about 550 million years ago. No, wait, wait, wait. The Burgess Shale is 510 million, and you're talking at 500 million? Mm, I think we're in the five. Uh, well, we have to get our little calibrators out, Dave. Yeah. But the Cambrian stretches for 490 to 545. Oh, wow. Good, Dave. Very good. I was real close. The Cambrian period lasted from 485.4 to 541 million years ago for a total time of 55.4 million years. And when you think about it, the 0.4 and 55.4 million years represents 400,000 years or about 6,000 human generations. That's a lot of grandpas. Very good. And Plectronoceros is not one of the oldest. It is sort of the later Cambrian. It's later Cambrian, yeah. But I have a theory. What's your theory? If you have this very first ground snail, he was a ground snail-like guy, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Plectronoceros was on the ground snail-like, all right? If you build chambers in a shell and they fill with gas, there will be a point where not only will he become neutrally buoyant, and be able to leave the ground and become the first cephalopod that is in the water column, right? The flight of the cephalopods. That was their original the innovation. The flight yes. of the cephalopods. Yeah. So that's a, that's a game changer when suddenly you're up in the water column. But this, this thing about the gas, this is what I want to know. And this is kind of a dumb question. The best kind. Well, where do you get the gas from? Where, yes. where How do you start? Get, where do you get gas from under the ocean and put it in your shell? Right. You go to the gas station? What? <laughs> what are they doing? That it is not something that I totally understood until I started writing this book, which is one of the great things I love about being a science communicator as well as a scientist is there's a lot of stuff that I don't really understand until I have to tell other people about it. Try doing a podcast. (laughs) Seriously, I can imagine. So the gas that comes into the chambers in the shell, um, I used to think that they pumped it in, but they don't. It just diffuses in from the blood because the, the, the siphuncle has blood, the animals, it's connected to the bloodstream of the whole animal. And just like our blood has dissolved oxygen and dissolved carbon dioxide, um, so does a cephalopod's blood and most animals' blood. And so when what is actually happening is they make the blood in the siphuncal really salty. And they make it so salty that it pulls the liquid out of the chambers because the sort of watery liquid that's in there is less salty. And so by osmosis, it gets pulled into the siphuncal. And then there's less pressure inside the chamber and that just pulls the gas out. It pulls the dissolved gas out of the bloodstream to fill up the chamber. And then you end up with this gas-filled chamber. How do you start moving then? You've got to start pumping stuff, right? Right. Well, and then that is actually, the reason we understand that process reasonably well is it's still what chambered nautiluses do today, the only cephalopod that has an external shell. And so it's been possible to study that fairly well. And then, yeah, then you're sort of like a dirigible. You're sort of like a hot air balloon underwater where you've got this buoyant shell that offsets the weight of your body and the weight of the shell itself and pulls you up off of the seafloor. Now, that's a huge innovation because, as you guys know, back in the Cambrian, there weren't any fish. There weren't any 
big, there aren't any marine reptiles. So there's kind of nothing swimming around. Everything's crawling. Everything's trilobites well, and worms. Well, Anomalocaris. Wasn't Anomalocaris a swimmer? All right. So an, you've got Anomalocaris. Oh, I was going to get you on that. All right. So Anomalocaris uh, was also swimming, but fairly close to the seafloor in most interpretation okay. so it was swimming but not like way up there and so plectronoceros and its descendants <laughs> could get way up there but how did they move if you're just a snail hanging out of a buoyant shell you're just kind of at the mercy of the currents and so then pretty quickly they evolved jet propulsion wow and that's what we still see in cephalopods today Wow. So that's how squid are getting around. Exactly. Octopus, all of them. It's really the movement of the water. They're sucking yeah, it in. Yeah. Yeah. You get a siphon, which points your jet of water. And so you can, you fill your whole mantle cavity body with water, seawater, just <laughs> suck it in and then squirt it out really hard through this narrow opening. And that propels the animal in the opposite direction. But you can move that, that siphon exactly. so you can move forward yes. and back. Right. So there is, wow, that's cool. And what would they, that was the big question, isn't it? They they got big pretty fast. So uh, by the Ordovician, you've got your giant orthocones, giant straight-shelled cephalopods. And yeah. really, I think of them as some of the first ocean giants because Anomalocaris got big-ish, big? but still like smaller than a person. Um, and these giant orthocones were six meters long, maybe nine meters long. And it's hard to reconstruct the total size of them. And so it's easy to imagine them as predators. That's 30 feet. 30 feet? Yeah, maybe. The orthocones, they, they were the top predator. Were they predators? Then? Were I mean, they? They're 30 were they? feet long. They're eating. It's easy to guess. Something that big. And, and all of the modern cephalopods are carnivorous. Uh, we don't have any grazing squid or octopuses out there. And so it's it's pretty easy to imagine that trait going back in time. Um, and so we say, okay, maybe they were the first big predators. But the problem is we don't have any fossil jaws from this time period for cephalopods at all. None. And we don't know if that's because they didn't have jaws yet. But wait, but no cephalopods have jaws. They have beaks yes. or they have... Oh, well spotted, Dave. That's right. So modern cephalopods. Yeah, all have there's beaks. no jaws ever. <laughs> ever, there are no jaws. Uh, it's true. So what I but mean. Wait, but the older ones have a uh, straining teeth structure, which you found in a CT scan I saw yes. on your tongue. Yes. So there's well, the reason I say jaws and not beaks. I'll explain. I'll explain. So the reason I said jaws, even though technically there are no jaws, like a vertebrate has a nice wiggly jawbone, is because they have multiple kinds of mouth parts in the fossil record, and that includes beaks, like modern squid and octopuses have beaks that look so much like bird beaks, parrot beaks, very sharp, very bitey. Um, and we find fossil beaks, uh, but not from the Ordovician much more recently. And we also find these fossil aptici, which are just bizarre structures that the ammonites, the coiled cephalopods had. And some of them are big, giant things that could have, could have been like closing doors covering their shell maybe and then also used to strain plankton out of the water um some of them there's some ideas that they could have used a much smaller hmm. they could have been used almost like a cutting board for a much smaller upper beak to cut the food into little pieces on this big shovel like lower aptiki or maybe they use them to dig they're hard yeah they're hard and 
Are they, what are they made of? Are they shell or are they some they're sort They're calcified. Of... Yeah, yeah. They're essentially like a piece of shell. Wow. It reminds wow, me so... of the uh, the armored fish's... Yes. Placa... The placoderms. They had like scissor-like teeth before they had actual yeah. dentition. Right. Didn't have teeth. They had the big plates. So that's actually with the, the beak of an octopus. That's the one thing that prevents it from going. It's the only thing it has right. to worry it's about the only hard as part. far as getting under things. You you had to tape your octopus. Uh, we use duct tape. Uh, you use duct tape to seal off your little tanks at home? Yeah, duct yeah. tape and a lot of plastic. So I, I would take plastic bags and spread them and tape them. Keep the octopus in. I think that's so cool. You know, the, the great dinosaur renaissance, and you, you've you been saying that maybe octopus and squid need that same sort of revolutionary love, but I think it's actually happening. I think within our lifetimes and within the last 20, 30 years, I've seen this great, like, suddenly octopus are everywhere. And this octopus t-shirts and octopus love, I think there's a real renaissance happening. But I think your whole point too, that there's an intelligence there that we see in an octopus that seems so alien because it is from this the mollusks, this other creature that we separated from half a billion years ago. And yet you look anywhere else on the family tree, sure, there's vertebrates that look back at you. But when you look at an octopus, there's awareness, there's something going on there. So you're kind of leading this reconsideration of uh, cephalopods, I think. Right? I, I feel like um, I'm honored to be part of the Renaissance. I agree with you. I think that it is happening and it's a really beautiful thing to see. Um, something about the differences between us and them and yet there's a connection there seems to really capture a lot of interest. And I feel like um, Monarchs of the Sea, which originally came out as Squid Empire, is one of a whole cluster of really, um, really incredible books. Like I'm glad to be part of like Simon Montgomery's Soul of an Octopus and Peter Godfrey Smith's Other Minds. And then there's um, right, this yeah. very new documentary that we were talking about, My Octopus Teacher, as well as other grassroots organizations of just people being excited about cephalopods. And it's really cool to see that and to be a part of it. And I think what I um, I'm excited about kind of contributing to that is a little bit of the, what we're talking about today, this additional perspective of how deep their evolutionary lineage is. Because a lot of people just know them as the masters right. of color change and their sentient eyes and the, the things that you see when you go into the ocean today. And I really like the depth of perspective that you get when you see how that evolved over half a billion years. And it's kind of cool, too, to see that our idea of alien intelligence is usually, uh, like, started with H.G. Wells. It's always an octopus. It's always an know, octopus. But, and you uh, know what I just learned <laughs> yeah. is that um, even Space Invaders, I don't know if you ever played that, but that, like, early classic oh, yeah. arcade game, oh, yeah. I just learned that those, uh, those were inspired by octopuses, those aliens dropping from space. I love that. So, yeah, they've been very much entwined with our sense of what is alien for a long time. And you say octopuses. I do. Shall we have a quick detour into plurals? Well, yeah, sure. then, then back Squid, to the Squids, squids. So, yeah, I, I say octopuses. The word itself was coined by scientists long after anybody spoke ancient Greek or Latin. So it is not itself an ancient Greek or Latin word, but it uses ancient Greek roots, octo for eight and pod for foot, 
what happens with the root pod is that in a singular, it becomes puss. If it were plural, it would be potus. Not to be confused with the occupant of the White House. And so if you want to treat it like an ancient Greek word, like the roots are, the singular is octopus and the plural is octopodes. Octopodes. Mm. But octopus sounds easier. It's, now it's an English oh. word. So I say, why not just pluralize it like an English word? So back to beaks, Dave. I, I derailed you there. It's all right. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. You can, you can add stuff that goes at the end of the pod in the middle and then they make me edit it out. <laughs> Thank you okay. very much, Ray. I've got to the take magic. this section and put it there. Back to Beak. So I wrote a question. Is there any, and I think I know the answer, is there any ammonite soft body preservation anywhere, anything? There isn't. I, I saw in your talk, you said there isn't, and they've now been able to CT scan some of these giant ammonite shells and find the radula. Yes, right? yes. Now, the regula is the tongue, Yeah. It, it, so it's obviously a muscle that attaches to the beak-like structures, which you call the... Apticus singular. Apticus. Apticus, right. And, and these, when you look at them in, in this CT scan, which we'll have on your page, they look like combs in a weird, jumbly right. shape. So one of the tricky things about the radula is that it, even though we call it a tongue and it has a lot in common with our tongues, it isn't a tongue in the sense that it's a muscle. It is actually a fairly hard structure, not as hard as a shell, but if you, if you actually like ever dissect a squid or an octopus and end up pulling the radula out, it's, it's more like it's chitin, sort of like the stuff that our fingernails are made of or the like slightly tougher stuff that the squid pen is made out of, which is something we can talk about later. And so it preserves a little bit better than something like pure muscle or, or pure soft material. And that's why they've been able to find these radula in CT scans and the shape of them. And I should say the radula is a kind of tongue, if we want to call it that, that all mollusks uh, ancestrally had. So snails and slugs today still also have radula. And because there's so many different radula in modern times in nature, we can actually have a sense of what different shapes of radula are good for eating. Um, there are snails that use them to scrape algae off of the rocks. Um, there are snails that use them because they're predators and it helps them with their prey. And so by looking at the shapes of these radula that were fossilized, they could make guesses about what those ancient cephalopods were eating. So I've drawn many an ammonite in my day, and uh, I've depicted them diff in different ways. I know that Neil Landman at the American Museum of Natural History, little, you've worked yeah. with him a little bit. Uh, he's He depicts uh, ammonites as having very short little yeah. arms, if any, uh, like which a kind of blows my mind. Yeah. Well, no, mm. even shorter than that. But then there were so many different varieties of ammonites, yeah. the shapes, the coiled shapes, the heteromorphs that are yeah, but for shaped like 300 million years they've been alive. There isn't one fossil. Yeah, it's fascinating, man. How many? Yeah. How long have they been around, ammonites? Ammonites flourish for what a uh, couple hundred million years. Let's they died out of the Cretaceous sixty-six million years ago, and they evolved in the Devonian. So we're going from about four hundred yeah, to so that's a good yeah. And there's not one fossil of a soft body preservation. It's nope. so crazy. Nope. Well, that's... you know what is interesting when when you look at all the soft body preservation around the planet, they seem to be in very shallow marine environments or lake environments. 
And you'd think then that would maybe indicate that ammonites are a deep ocean. Except that where the shell fossils are found is very often indicative of shallow habitats. Really? Yeah. There goes that theory. (laughs) You lose. Someday somebody will find that that Uber, that uh, the one uh, fossil that will solve all this. But in your mind's eye, with all those ammonite shapes, uh, Dana, how do you uh, how do you envision them? Uh, do you envision them with long it's, arms? Oh gosh, it's so hard to say because tentacles. It's impossible not to be influenced by all of the amazing art that I've seen yeah. as well. Like your book, your your uh, ammonites and the cruising the fossil freeway that are yeah, yeah. floating through and and actually have a shirt with some ammonites on it right now. Oh, you do? Some of them with some oh, short wow. arms, some of them with some longer ones. And, um, and yeah, and uh, Neil Landman worked with an artist on an illustration that's actually in the book of an ammonite, one of these heteromorphs that had a really unusual sort of paperclip shaped shell. And from his work on it, he thinks that that one was uh, more of a very drifting plankton feeder. So not an active predator using its arms almost like a web to try to catch plankton. Um, more similar almost to what a vampire squid does mm. today, which is one of the only sort of drift feeding cephalopods oh, right. that we know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And huh. and that that was a really compelling take on that species. So I think that to answer your question overall, I think they must have been filling a lot of different niches. And so I'm sure that there were just like there are today, there were cephalopods that were um, probably feeding off of the bottom, picking up ancestral crabs and lobsters and scavenging down and that, on them. yeah scavenging. different shapes and i'm sizes. sure there were lots of drift feeders um i'd like to imagine that there were some pretty aggressive predators because that's really fun yeah it's to cool. be honest it's cool <laughs> but so the nautiloids branched off very very early yeah. and is and it's the, the nautilus that you find today they survived the cretaceous yep. And they did. I think one of our guests, Peter Ward, told us that ammonites died out because the ammonite larvae live in the first few inches of the ocean surface. And when the nuclear winter or whatever the massive uh, <laughs> environmental change happened at the end of the Cretaceous, that killed them all. Yet Nautilus, they reproduce deeper in the ocean and were probably spared. But the question is... More insulated. If we see what this body plan looks like in today's squids and octopus and nautilus, surely you can infer using comparative anatomy that the ammonites were squid-like, yes, no? Yes. In fact, um, I think that that has been one of the interesting transitions in reconstructions, artistic reconstructions, is that after they realized that ammonite shells were cephalopods, which took a little bit of realizing, um, they started to draw the animals as like nautiluses because it's an animal that lives in a big coiled external shell. So like a nautilus, they drew it with lots and lots of arms. A nautilus can have 60 or more arms. Um, They drew it with a hood, which is this sort of leathery soft part that a nautilus has to cover its body. Um, And then over time, we realized that the ammonites and the group called the coleoids, which is all of the squid and cuttlefish and octopuses, those two groups, ammonites and coleoids, have a common ancestor. Um, More recently than the nautiloids branched off. And so this sort of comparative anatomy that you're talking about 
um, has led us to this view of ammonites and the, the soft parts of ammonites probably being more similar to a squid or an octopus than what we see today in the Nautilus. So you'd see the similar kind of eye also. A Nautilus yes. has a really primitive, weird-looking basic eye, but Super but uh, the coleoids have very advanced eyes with uh, the yep. weird pupils and stuff. So so that's the way I've been drawing them, you know? So mm-hmm. And the, the number of arms, too, is now thought right. probably they would have had 10 arms, which is the ancestral condition for squid and octopuses. Um, and then octopuses, over time, lost two of theirs, and oh. squid modified two of theirs into the tentacles. Uh-oh. <laughs> I just learned that. I got to start... I'll just start adding two more arms. You're still young. Ah! You're still young. There's plenty of time to draw more on ammonites. No, I'm, I'm getting older. And so, how big? Day. How big was the largest ammonite? Uh, is oh. it something like ten feet? I mean, it's massive, right? And why? Why did they well, get so big? Why did they? And it, that's such a great question about cephalopods. Generally, is they seem to have evolved giants in every stage of their evolution, um, which is so cool. We still we have giant squid and colossal squid today. But the the biggest ammonite, as I recall, um, is uh, Parapozosia. Does that sound right to you, Ray? As well, I feel like Easy you've illustrated it. Easy for you to it. say. Uh, that's the German one. Is that the one in Germany? Yeah. That's, uh, yeah. There's a. It's about eight feet across, or something, maybe. Something like that. Yeah, yeah. It's um, it's a truck tire. I think it is four. The mining trucks. Yeah, it's it's big enough that a person could very easily climb inside, um, which I now want to do. I feel like that's a great missed opportunity. Every natural history museum that does not have a giant ammonite for me to climb into is like wow. Disappointing. You could have had that. Yeah. Well, we heard rumors of a 10-foot uh, shell of an ammonite in the Matanuska Mountains here in Alaska, but we'll see if that really? ever comes to be. But I have a question. The great competition. So at the end of the Cretaceous, we lose all our ammonites. They must have really just filled such a huge niche in the ocean. Yeah. And then in the yeah. Paleocene and the Eocene, we see the fish radiation. It just fish really diversify the bony fish yep. but what's going and the on coleoids do as yeah well. and the coleoids take off too this so there's yeah. this, the coleoids the squid get fast just like the fish get mm-hmm. fast there's this competition i saw in one of your talks to hail our squid overlords <laughs> and i love that what's that all about so and this is yes. this competition and the number of cephalopods in the ocean yes. what's going on now yeah so that's such a great question it walks us through everything I'm from sorry, the, yeah. the kt extinction to the modern day and what's going to yeah, happen yeah. tomorrow that's uh, a big uh, question this is just a little just a little thing um, yeah, yeah. but if you don't mind me walking back to the start of your question with the the big extinction the big kt yeah. extinction yeah. where we we know that Ammonites bit it, and nautiloids and coleoids made it through. And there is but just some to confirm, coleoids are squid, octopuses, and cuttlefish. Got it. So coleoids are all of the cephalopods we have today, except for nautiluses. Why is it called a coleoid? What does that mean? Oh, that's a very interesting question. I'm so glad you asked. Coleoid comes from the ancient word for scabbard. And they were given that name because they sheathed their shell, oh, the hard hidden. external oh. shell of nautiloids and ammonoids ah. went inside ah. the coleoids. That, thanks for explaining it. So coleoids take off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so we have this extinction that the coleoids make it through, although not all of them. There is a large group of coleoids that goes extinct as well. Uh, the belemnites, which are these often often just shorthand referred to as ancient squid, although they aren't really true squid. And there were a lot of them, and they all bit it too. 
And the thinking is that the coleoids that survived and the nautiloids that survived, as you sort of started to explain, they were able to find some kind of refuge from the terrible disaster that was the asteroid smashing into the planet and the NKT extinction. And whether that was some combination of the deep sea or also having a different life history strategy, the nautiloids especially take a very long time to grow in the egg and then to mature afterwards. And the ammonoids were thought to lay smaller eggs that grew up very, very fast. And they had these tiny babies, um, sort of like the squid we were talking about that have tiny babies today. And those tiny babies would have been very vulnerable to changes in the seas, to changes in acidification and temperature. Whereas the larger nautilus babies that are living, growing more slowly, spending more time in the egg, were, could kind of, were a little more resilient to the change. Um, and so the, somehow we lost ammonites, we lost belemnites, we've got the rest of the coleoids and the nautiloids squeaking through, as it were, and then diversification in the Paleocene and Eocene, as you were saying, we get we start to see um, really branching into their new niches. Okay. So, so here we are now post-extinction with coleoids and nautiloids are the cephalopods that we have left. Um, and we've got fish diversifying. We're starting to get marine mammals like whales diversifying as well. Um, I don't know if you've talked oh, much yeah. about Eocene whales, but there's some pretty bonkers stuff out oh, there. Oh, we have, yes, And yes. those things love to eat cephalopods let me tell you like even still today whales and dolphins will eat any squid that they can get their hands on for the most part and that diversification of fish and mammals so vertebrates in the sea really drove as far as we understand it a lot of what cephalopod evolution was doing because they had to be able to escape uh, because they're delicious once that you don't have an external shell and your internal shell is pretty small you're just like this little swimming bar of protein is basically what a squid is. Uh, an octopus yep. is just a little snack that you find under a rock if you're a dolphin or a seal or something like that. And so they really had to get creative. And that is when we think that the real diversity of form that we see today, like the amazing camouflage uh, that's faster than anything else in the animal kingdom, the ink that they can squirt to deter predators. Sometimes they squirt ink into a shape called a pseudomorph yeah. that actually looks a little bit like a squid. Whoa. And then the real squid goes the other way. I like that. Um, and at the same time, probably this uh, expansion of their neurological capabilities, their nervous systems to control all of this complexity in their bodies. And now that brings us to the last part of Ray's question, what's happening today? A lot of the traits that cephalopods evolved, and I'm talking mostly about coleoids here, a lot of the coleoid traits right. seem to be really well suited to dealing with human-caused changes in the ocean. They have really adaptive life history strategies, a lot of them. like So like these, I love it, it comes full circle because the Humboldt squid that we were talking about, so this female Humboldt squid can lay half a million eggs and they all hatch in a week. They develop super fast. Um, and then you've got half a million squid babies out there. And sure, most of them are going to die. But the ones that live will grow to maturity in a year or two years and then have half a million babies wow. of their own. And that kind of life history strategy, this um, live fast and spawn and die young, is typical for coleoid cephalopods. And it really puts them in a good position to adapt to changing oceans, changing temperature, changing acidity, changing oxygen saturation 
saturation. So a lot of species seem to be doing fairly well, which is encouraging. There are species that aren't. Yeah, so their but, numbers but, are on the increase. But the human impact is really only the last 50 to 100 years as far as the mass fisheries. So yeah. you're talking changes. Uh, you're talking about a life cycle that has taken millions of years to finalize into a live fast, die young strategy, aren't we? Well, the strategy has probably been around for a long time. Um, and it was driven in large part, we think, by their competition with vertebrates. So the the evolution of that strategy was a good way to deal with having an ocean full of fish with jaws that can crunch through your minimal protection. And then it also turns out to be advantageous to certain changes that are happening in the ocean today. So it's not like it's not like cephalopods have evolved these amazing responses to human-caused changes in the ocean. They just are sort of pre-adapted right. in a certain way. Right. They're almost perfectly suited for uh, superabundance and to fill these niches. And I was astonished. I've only been squid fishing once in my life. I went out a couple years back and fished here in the coast of Alaska and went out with some friends at night. And I finally got the technique down where you have the little uh, the fish prongy <laughs> The jig. <thing>. The jig. <laughs> The, yeah, the jig. Thank you. The, <laughs> the, the the jig, and I learned actually you don't use it like a jig. In other words, you don't just push it, pull it up and down. If you let let off it for a second, that squid would get off. But once I got it down, we started hauling them in left and right, and yeah. I was just amazed at the abundance. I mean, we just kept catching them, and I was I look Poor at things. the ocean out there now and realize wow so many squid. The other fun calculation. For how many squid there are out there, you can go out and catch them. And if you happen to be in an abundant place, you really get struck by how abundant they are. But then you can also look in the stomach of the whales that eat squid, like sperm whales, for example, that eat mostly squid. And by counting the beaks and doing some calculations back from that, as a few researchers have done, um, they have found out that there are just millions of giant squid in the deep sea that we can't see and we don't even realize they're there, but the wow. sperm whales know they're there and they're eating multiple giant squid per day, just chowing down on these things. Wow, that, that reminds me, I went out on a salmon shark survey once in 2001 and we caught a bunch of salmon sharks and we uh, dissected a few and it was amazing yeah. the number of yeah. squid beaks that were in those shark bellies. I have wow. a question on, uh, when I look at the cephalopod family tree, all right. It starts off with our friend uh, Plectronoceros at 500 million years ago, and it's shell, 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 giant cone shape, paperclip shape, shell, 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 Cretaceous, no shells, <laughs> except for the Nautilus. Yeah. All right. So is it possible these shells had any, the fact that the shell made them more likely to die out at the end of the Cretaceous? Or that just happens to be, no, that's not the reason. I think that the there is some bias when you look at the tree that the shells are super fun to draw. And so we don't tend to see, we, we tend to see a lot of that, you know. Um, <laughs> the, the shell itself, just the fact that you have an external shell doesn't seem to have been a factor in the end Cretaceous extinction. Um, how fast you can grow that shell 
might right. have been one. Um, that because the Ammonites have this had this faster growing strategy for building their shells, and so maybe they struggled to do that if the oceans were more acidic, whereas the nautiloids were growing more slowly and they could adapt. These are all hypotheses based on various things that we've figured, but none of them are like that's definitely why it happened. So how old would an eight-foot ammonite be? Oh, I don't know. There's no way of knowing that, is there? Not really. Are there, I... like, growth rings? Yeah. I'm sure there's somebody working on that somewhere, you know? Some PhD, yeah. some young student trying to figure that thing out. But, uh, huh. Dave, something you mentioned there I wanted to, to circle back to because it's the, when you look at the cephalopod family tree, sort of what do you see represented? Um, and partly you see so many shells because they fossilize better, right? Obviously, you get a few soft-body fossils for every thousand or more. Yeah, I don't know what the ratio is, but you get loads more hard shell fossils or bone fossils than you do soft fossils. And so once the coleoids internalized their shell, which happened way before the end Cretaceous extinction, we have early squid and octopus from the Jurassic, from the Cretaceous, and they had internal shells, but they were smaller um, and they were they were already being very reduced. And so we end up with these squid that have the thunderstones, like the belemnites that we were talking about, that you find these um, small but still hard and calcified fossils of squid. Yes, there is one. Um, and then over time... Why do you say thunderstone? Ah, yes, I should stop. So a thunderstone is the common name for a belemnite fossil. And a belemnite is an ancient relative okay. of squid that had an internal shell. Yeah. And so yeah. that internal shell was very smooth Got and it. very long and pointy. It's like Native American, isn't it? Native uh, Americans were the ones that most put of that the in there. Thunderstones were actually found in Europe, and uh, I've heard stories okay. in medieval Europe that people used to grind them up and make cures out of them for various diseases. Okay, because it was the Native Americans uh, who named trilobites as stone bugs. Well, belemnites are just—they're bullet-shaped. They are yeah. like a bullet, but uh, very much does like does so that that internal shell evolves away? Is it, that does. Where, like, it does. It does. So over a, time, it becomes what we have today in squid is called the pen or the gladius. Ah. Um, gladius okay. is fun because it means sword and it's sheathed in the coleoid. So they're carrying that metaphor on. Um, but a pen, if you, if you open up a squid today, if you buy a whole squid at the market to cook, or if you're dissecting one, it's very thin and very flexible. It's much more like fingernail material again, like chitin and it's not calcified. It's not hard like bone. Um, and so that's one of the reasons that we don't see a lot of squid fossils compared to a lot of ammonite fossils, even though squid were probably very abundant. And there's another reason we don't see a lot of squid fossils, um, which is that this is this is such a crazy cool study um, that somebody did a few years ago, and I, I talked to him about it, um, uh, Jakob Winter, for the book. It's in the book. He He did these decomposition experiments where you take squid and you just take a dead squid and let it decompose and just continue to see what happens yeah. over time. And he said it was the most disgusting experiment he had ever done, but he learned something really cool, which is that uh, compared to other animals, a squid's pH changes, a dead squid's pH changes in such a way that it won't fossilize in most circumstances. Uh, so even soft body fossils, we never see any squid. It becomes You'll find acidic, few, right? It becomes super acidic, yeah. 
And so the whole thing just breaks apart without ever fossilizing. I've seen fossil pens, though, uh, from Kansas, from giant yes, squid from Kansas. Absolutely. Right? So, so they those tend to things fossilize. Are, those fossil pens are actually before this transition happened, where squid got really that what they got is they they evolved a whole bunch of ammonia in oh. their tissues, and that's what messes with the pH. The ammonia that is used to keep them buoyant in the absence of a chambered shell. Now, is there a transitional fossil between a ammonite and a coleoid where you, the, the round shell dissolves away and becomes the paleoctopus or, or whatever? So that's, that's a great question. There wouldn't be one between ammonites and coleoids because those groups evolved from a common ancestor. Right. So coleoids didn't evolve from ammonites, but they both evolved from a common ancestor, which probably had a straight shell, interestingly enough. And so this, this common ancestor would have been a cephalopod with an external shell that was straight. And then the ammonites went in a curling the shell direction. And so they evolved from this straight shell ancestor and they curled it. And sometimes they tied it in knots and they grew crazy spines on it. And they did all kinds of wacky things with the external shell. And from that same ancestor, the coleoids evolved an internal shell. And the closest thing to a transitional fossil um, that I think is known is something called Sphoceris, uh, which is a fun word to say, Sphoceris. Sphoceris is spelled S-P-H-O-O-C-E-R-A-S. Everybody say it with me. Sphoceris. Sphoceris, uh, we believe, had a sometimes internal, sometimes external shell. So the actual animal was able to cover its shell with its whole mantle, Kind of the way a cowrie snail today. Sometimes you can see a cowrie with its actual body covering its smooth shell, and then sometimes it retracts within. And so it's thought that that might have been what Sphoeceris did. And it, when it had its mantle, its body all the way outside its shell, it was using that to maybe break off pieces of its shell so that the shell wouldn't get too big and unwieldy. Wow. And, and why does the cowrie also... shell do that? Is there a reason why? The cowrie seems to do it for a different, a totally different reason, of course, because nature can never be straightforward. Um, they do uh, a certain amount of polishing of the shell to get it to look the way they want. Um, and there's probably more to it as well that I don't know because of not being a cowrie biologist. What is a cowrie shell? Oh, it's oh, that what's... beautiful little... Very, very shiny shell. Oh, okay. It's tropical. It's a tropical... You'll find them at the shell shops. Shell shop. <laughs> But don't get shell shocked when you're at the shell shop. Hey, I want to I want to just ask a question, Dana. You've taken a a turn away from uh, doing actual research and working as a squidologist. You've become Correct. a science communicator, doing things like this and doing outreach and doing books yeah. and maybe even screenplays and that kind of thing. I think what's been wonderful. I was we're Facebook friends, and I was looking at some of the stuff you've been doing in the pandemic. You've become a sidewalk scientist too, which That's I thought right. was really cool. You know, that you're was doing really these, fun. Yeah. You're doing science on the sidewalk out in front of your house? Yeah. Squid yeah. scientist here? I think it may be maybe one of the most effective bits of science communication I've ever done, and I didn't actually put that much thought into it ahead of time. But yeah, you know, we all, in March or so, we all were cooped up in our houses, and um, I was starting to see people in our neighborhood do a lot more sidewalk art. Uh, kids, but also 
families, um, even grownups who don't have kids were like, oh, I can, I've got Chuck, I could go out and draw on the sidewalk. And, um, and after a little while, I, so I have two young children, I have a seven-year-old and a four-year-old, and I used to go into the seven-year-old's classroom and teach science once a week. And I kind of missed that. She missed that. So I was thinking, how can I do some science lessons uh, for her class, for anybody? And we were talking to a family who lives across the street who have a little boy. And they, the parents were telling him, anything you want to know about squid, you can ask Dana. You live across the street from a squid scientist. And so what I did is I thought, oh, gosh, I've got a print of a Humboldt squid. It means I took once a real whole Humboldt squid, five foot long, painted it with paint and then pressed a piece of paper on top of that. It's, it's a style of art called squid printing or fish printing, if you do it with fish, <laughs> gyotaku, um, gyotaku in Japan. Yep. Exactly. And so then I had this, I peeled the paper up and I have a print of a real squid. So it's the exact, it's got the arms, it's got everything. So I put it up in the window so, I, so the kid across the street can see it. But then I thought and everybody who's walking down the street is going to see it and everybody's going for walks these days because there's nothing else to do. So there were always people walking by the street in front of our house. So then I thought they're going to want to know why I have a squid in the window. So I made a, an informational sign to go in the window next to it. This is a Humboldt squid. It was a real squid. Um, and then I thought they're going to have a lot more questions than that. So then I said, if you have any questions, write them on the sidewalk. And oh, so I great. put out some chalk. And I wrote on the sidewalk, a squid scientist lives here. Ask any questions you've got. And it was amazing. We went down the block uh, just <laughs> answering questions. My kids really? would help. And uh, wow. it was super, super fun. And then I also got to share the photos online, as you saw, and fielded a lot more questions. Because once people see that you're answering questions about a question about squid. You know, that gives me an idea. I want to get a piece of chalk and actually draw a life-size giant that squid or a colossal exactly squid. exactly what you need well, to do. come down to your neighborhood. Yes, that would be amazing. Um, well, you know what I've started? <laughs> What's that? I've started a chalk timeline from my street of the beginning of the universe, starting at the Big Bang. Oh, I love it. That's such a good idea. I'm only uh, into the formation of the first galaxies and I'm in Tijuana right now, 140 miles south. So I love I've, it. Um, I think yeah, I'm going to abandon this project. You might need to change your scale. I know. <laughs> That's why I made that joke. Ray, it's a perfect time to ask a time travel question. I think so. Hey, Dan, I don't, I don't know if you listened to any of our other shows, but we asked us of everyone oh, if yes. you could time travel, you get to go on the way, way back machine. What? time period would you go to and what would you want to see <laughs> it's a, good to specify that yeah, I can't go um, forward. because i do i do want to go forward and see our squid overlords when they have evolved into terrestrial forms and have <laughs> taken over all of our cities but since that's not on the table we will go that's back. not a possibility you think it's a possibility of of cephalopods leaving the ocean sure absolutely i think it's a possibility i don't know how long it would take we already have snails man True. But we do okay. have terrestrial mollusks. They're gastropods, Ray. They're not yeah. cephalopods. Well, they're mollusks. They're in the same... But they're mollusks. Crowd. Yeah, okay. I, I call them land squid. But, okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so you would like to see the squid overlords in the future, but... Absolutely, given the option. 
Um, but since that's not on the table, we can go back in time to the Ordovician, oh. which is when the giant straight-shelled cephalopods evolved. And although there are so many things that I would like to see, I would like to see how the weirdest ammonites lived. I think the reason I want to go all the way back to the Ordovician is because those were the first giants, the first sea monsters, really, and which means they were the first monsters on the planet because there was nothing on land at this point. And we still don't know how they lived. We were talking about how we don't have any jaws for them. We don't have any beaks for them. So we don't know what they ate. We don't even know for sure if these incredible um, 20 foot long shells were horizontal in the water or vertical. Mm, yeah. There's been wow. very, just last year, there was a new study trying to analyze how the physics of these shells would have worked and suggesting that they probably would have been vertical unless the animal was exerting effort to go horizontal, which is just crazy because then I start envisioning this unbelievably long shell and it's got its head down on the seafloor, maybe eating trilobites, maybe digging up worms, maybe just waiting for dead stuff. We don't know. And then this 20 foot long shell and the tip of it sticking up out of the water <laughs> like a shark fin, but just really slow. Bobbing around. That's a cool slow. vision. I love that. All right, I'm there with so, you. <laughs> that's brilliant. I, but who knows? I want to see it. And it's a pretty safe time to go to also. True uh, that. I should point out for a human. <laughs> this is well, the when the Silurian. To, the yeah. Silurian? Ordovician. Oh, the Ordovician. Ordovician. So that's before the Silurian. Yeah. It is. That's when the sea scorpions take off. You'd have to watch. That's the slurried. So you're safe in the Ordovician. Yeah, you could see some early Eurypterids, and I'd like that too because they're pretty, pretty swell. Um, what do you think about the idea that the chambers, which makes it buoyant for a conical shelled ammonite, if those chambers are buoyant, it's going to have to be vertical because the buoyancy, the air pockets are going to be at the top, at the thin part, the the, the cone part. Yes, you would think that, wouldn't you? But some of these species actually filled in the top or the end chambers with what are called cameral deposits. Cameral just refers to the room, like it's a little room, a chamber with deposits of minerals. And so you actually have some of these animals where some of the chambers are almost all the way filled in, so oh. they don't have much gas in them. And then some of the chambers have gas. And beyond that, they can they have a certain level of control over how much liquid and how much gas is in each chamber. It's not a really fast change that they can execute, but it is something that they can change based on changing the saltiness of the blood in the siphon. So wait, that's a conscious, that's an instinctual event or a conscious thing? Who knows? How would you find out? Well, you're going to go back and tell us. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> That's awesome. Should I ask my question, Ray? I think it's time yeah. for the, the big question. Yeah. The big question. Big question. All right. Lay it on me. Because of social media, people are using opinion as facts and truths. And, and they're saying that opinions and even lies are truths. And they're discrediting scientists now. And so basically... Science is under attack. And because of social media, people are believing opinions as truths. So what can you do? What can we do as uh, uh, users of, of social media? And what can you do as an educator 
to change the view that opinion is just that. It's an opinion. It's not a, a proven part of science. And how can we further the idea that facts are facts? It's a tough time to live in, that's for sure. And, and it can feel really daunting sometimes. I think that there's a few different approaches and sort of what what works for some people doesn't isn't going to work for everybody. But I think that one of the things that's been most rewarding and, and I hope successful in my experience has been just keeping the excitement. So not kind of falling down into holes of arguing and trying to convince. We, we know this is an interesting thing. We know from science that straight up trying to tell people that they are wrong and that there is a right thing that they should change their mind to believe is not an effective way of arguing. That just doesn't change people's minds. So I try to focus instead on just why science is awesome, what's exciting about it, um, why I get excited about it. I know that excitement is infectious and that this was something that was really cool about the sidewalk science project is that I would end up talking at a distance with neighbors who didn't have any intrinsic interest in science, some of whom were even skeptical about it, but they couldn't not be excited about the giant squid that I had drawn on the sidewalk. And so we could start to form just human connections over the excitement of the world around us and being passionate about it. And then at the same time, I see social media used for a lot of really positive things like being able to share these photos of the sidewalk science. And then that inspired other people to start drawing their own sidewalk science projects about what they were excited about. And it opened up to answering questions. And so I think focusing on the excitement of it and why it's cool and what it can do for us. And at the same time, I see a lot of people opening up more about the fact that while science itself is objective, scientists are not. And that acknowledgement that science that has been done in the past and some that's being done now um, has been done by biased and prejudiced and sometimes like downright mean people um, is, is a good thing to be open about. I think that that's not something we should sweep under the rug and say that all science and all scientists are objective, good people who are making no, the world a better place. No, that's a good point. That's a good point. It's uh, science. Science yeah. is a fact, but the someone presenting it could be opinionated. Yeah, and I think that being open about that is good. There are a lot of evil scientists in a lot of the movies. You know, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, so it's a tough thing. Like science. We want to present, like, like, really promote the scientists who are out there doing an amazing job at their research, at their communication, um, at diversifying the playing field, at correcting the prejudices and biases that have been in research in the past, um, to, to like give this new view of like we are trying to both clear the public's view of science, which is sometimes obscured or wrong or mistaken, and be open about the ways in which science itself has a problematic history in Western culture. Well, Dana, thank you very much. I think that that viewpoint, that uh, fascination and excitement is certainly a remedy, is a way to pull people in. And even though I know that uh, social media is oftentimes vilified, I think in a lot of ways, it has connected a lot of people. Definitely. And even in the pandemic times, when I saw your sidewalk art, it's like, that's a beautiful thing. Thanks. Science, uh, you know, on the sidewalk. And uh you know, it connects people in good ways. And I think uh, fascination, uh, you know, that's what we're, Dave and I are doing in the show. Yeah. We're absolutely fascinated by this stuff. And I'm really uh, privileged to have people like you on yeah. and to pick your brain and, 
and uh, put up with ventriloquist at an artist. And it's our, honestly uh, such a delight. Our little yeah, but you know what, Dana? You make science yeah. fun. You make science fun. Thanks. You really do. And your enthusiasm is infectious. And uh, it really uh, was a joy to hear you talk about such cool things like cephalopods. I, didn't, I, I never heard so the word fun. polioid before. <laughs> it's in my vocabulary now. Colioid. Glad yeah. I could help. The sheath for the shell. Colioid. You know what? I'm going to put my sword Ooh, in my colioid. Yeah. <laughs> Unsheath that scabbard, sir. Yeah. Ray, so, I'm yeah. hoping some art will come out of this. I saw your well, your gears turning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you actually already drew the giant squid on the sidewalk. I did. I did. You done it. Well, and the greatest thing about that was that it was somebody requesting it. I didn't even oh. think of it. But some some one of the questioners, and I don't know who because the question was there when I woke up in the morning, was if the giant squid started here and I drew a little line, how big would it be? And I was oh, like, wow. yes. So, <laughs> what about the colossal squid? Have you done one of those? I have not. Will we be able to see this picture on your Paleo Nerds page? Yes, absolutely. Yes, I was hoping that you could send us a picture so that we could share this. Great, I mean, you, great. It sounds like we need to draw a colossal squid out we there, do. too. We do. That so. does not yet exist. All right. You make science fun is what you do. So thank you so much for being a Paleo Nerd so on much. Paleo Nerds. This was fantastic. It has been a lot of fun, Dana. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. I had a great time. She was exciting. You know, I'm finding out that science communicators are actually good at communicating science. (laughs) I know. (laughs) I know. She's good. She's uh, enthusiastic and uh, she makes science fun. And then as she pointed out, I mean, that's how you get people in. Fascinate them, make it fun, make it exciting. And she was very patient with some of our dumb questions. Yours in particular. <laughs> Although mine was pretty Thanks, dumb. Ray. I, Thanks, Ray. The gas. Ray. I didn't know about the gas thing. You know, I mean, how in the heck do you get gas on the shelf? But she explained it very yeah. nicely. Yeah. Um, and also, I think I'm blown away that cephalopods are flourishing now. Yeah. Welcome, squid overlords. Yeah, they're doing okay weird. in the oceans. No, they're not doing okay. They're they're kicking ass. They're doing unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, I think in most cases, but uh, we shall see. We'll 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 manage a way to screw it up. I'm sure. I've you know. I've eaten braised octopus at a Greek restaurant, and I was going to ask the question. Maybe you know how do they catch so many octopuses to supply dinner? That's a lot of octopuses. You know, octopuses like to crawl into little spaces, and I think uh, I know that locals oh. eat. Just kind of put a they, put some bait down and, jars. and oftentimes they'll just crawl right into the pot. They can get in there. So actually, right, guys right. get them in shrimp pots here, you know, and right. um, you know old automobile tires, that kind of thing. So well, after watching uh, my my octopus teacher, something my like octopus that. teacher, I I will never eat an octopus again, ever. Yeah, you know, I was in Portugal last year, and I had a lot of octopus there, and it was tasty. But, yeah, no, I I hear you, man. I hear you. They're too smart. So, all right. On that note. um... Dana was fun, and uh, she's never eaten a squid. That's interesting. And she's a squidologist, and, uh, yeah. Because you love fish, and you draw fish, and you eat fish. Yeah, I'm having salmon for dinner tonight, man. (laughs) All right, well, 
<laughs> that was great. All right, man. Uh, another episode of Paleo Nerds. We we went down the nerd hole, and uh, it was awesome. Yeah, yeah. As always, fun, and we learned. We learned as we go, man. All right. All right. Don't eat a cephalopod. Okay. Hey, David Seaman. Okay. Talk to you later. Thank you for listening to Paleo Nerds. Make sure to like and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you're listening. If you want to learn more about what you heard today, check out our website, paleonerds.com. You'll find tons of pictures and links, including photographic evidence that today's guests and your hosts have been Paleo Nerds for a long, long time. Again, that's paleonerds.com. Thanks for listening. I'm a Paleo Nerd, I'm a Paleo Nerd, I'm a Paleo Nerd, don't you understand? I'm a Paleo